Marxist podcast Conversations on Faith and Equality. This is the start of season three of this podcast. So in the previous two, um, the first season was with my dad interviewing lots of different people and the last one we've had a whole load of different people and then the episode before this, if you want to kind of recap of where we've got to and my reflections on some of the podcasts, then listen to that one to hear me talk about that. But in this season I want to try and do things a bit differently maybe and this first one I've got two different people so that we can talk about an issue with people from different angles and different perspectives on something. So this one is all really about the impact that how you begin life has on you and the kind of inequality of what your childhood can be like that is with is not within your control. So we've got Ruth who's in the UK who's a social worker talking about the care system here and some of the struggles that there are there. And then we've got Sophie who works for a charity called Hope and Homes. And that charity's aim is to stop orphanages across the world and to stop institutional care, to get children out of those orphanages and into homes or into much smaller um, children's homes or foster care. And so it's really interesting having the two of them talk to each other and about what they're doing and about those kind of differences in, you know, whether it's an orphanage in the Ukraine or Romania, as opposed to children in our care system in this country. So I really enjoy talking to them and I think hopefully you'll find it interesting. This time Sophie's on Zoom and Ruth's in the room, so if the sound doesn't sound quite the same, that's, that's why. So I need to try and find a way to get the sound or sound good even if people are in different places but the other thing that before we start the podcast I have entered a podcast competition actually Miles forced me to do it but um it is one that people vote for so in the show notes for this I'm going to put in the details and if you are able to vote I would really, really appreciate it. The other thing is I also haven't had any reviews for a really long time. So if you haven't written a review and you like this podcast, please go and give me a review because it really helps like other people see it and it gives kind of the podcast a better, kind of I don't know how, how these algorithms work, whatever it means, more people get to listen to it. So if you're able to do that, I would really appreciate it. But I hope you enjoy hearing from Sophie and Ruth. This is definitely one of my favourites and I hope this is going to be the start of a good new season. Thanks for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Ruth and Sophie, for being here. Normally, I feel like I ask people and they're happy to come, but you two needed quite a bit of persuasion, <laughs> so I'm extra grateful that you're here. And I think, although the jobs that you both do are quite different, I feel like there is definitely a kind of overlap in the facts that I was thinking. One of the areas that I haven't actually talked about on any podcast is like the kind of inequality of where you start in life, like what your beginning is and for children that are like you can't they can't help the families that they're born into whether they've got money or they're not whether they've got a stable home or not and that probably is a huge inequality and something that there's nothing really those children can do about anything about that but it's something that you two are working with children that are in those areas and just to understand a bit more about what it really is like and if there's anything that we as society can do to understand that better, to help children in that environment and to, um, just have a better understanding of it really. So that's sort of why, why I thought it would be so interesting to talk to you and that there's a kind of, Ruth has got a like local UK 
picture, whereas Sophie, you're looking at it more kind of internationally in places, other places in the world. So I wonder, Sophie, if we could start with you and you could tell us um, kind of what you do and also why and how you sort of got into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so <clears throat> I do fundraising. Um, I used to do a bit of com communications and PR, um, but mainly fundraising now for a charity called Hope and Homes for Children. And their ambition is to be the catalyst for the global elimination of orphanages. So they, we work in 10 countries uh, in Eastern Europe, so Ukraine, Romania, Moldova, very much in the spotlight at the moment, in Southern and East Africa and uh, South Asia. And so what we do is we work, we're working to inspire the EU, the UN governments to close orphanages and we have social workers in those countries who um, are working to create community-based services to support families so that children can either remain in their families and be supported or be transitioned out of orphanages into either their families or foster families or family-based care. Um, and we also train child practitioners um, in all those countries um, and yeah so that's that's what they do and um, I can talk a bit about how I got into it mm -hmm. so um, when I was 19 I did some volunteering um, so I signed up to like a gap year company to go to Malawi to work in an orphanage and so when I got there with a friend, I kind of realised, just we began to question things, things didn't feel right. Um, and so that's when I just began to kind of understand that orphanages weren't safe places for children and weren't, and could be really harmful. Um, for starters, like when I got there, I didn't really have any skills like that were useful. I just had come out of school and especially with vulnerable children and I shouldn't have been there with these vulnerable children. Um, looking back on it, like, I didn't have a background check. Um, wow. So this company was using tourism to, was using orphanages as a way of, as a form of tourism. And that's a real problem with orphanages. Southern countries are like, that's why there are so many orphanages. Um, so because did um, you pay to go? Yeah, so I paid to go, and the money didn't, it wasn't getting to the children, like they weren't being fed properly, and it looked, it felt corrupt. So, yeah, that was when I first kind of began to think about it, and um, I also kind of learned more about child trafficking then, and I've worked for an anti-trafficking charity for four, four years, and also in this area, and what I think is not often talked about is the link between orphanages and trafficking. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I kind of got into it. I want to ask about more about what you said, but maybe it's good to um, Ruth just say what you do. Okay. <laughs> Hard act to follow. Um, so I'm a children's guardian. So I represent. I'm a. My background is social work, but I represent children's interests in court. 
um, when there's been an application by social services um, to keep the child safe, whether that is to remove them from their, ch- their parents' care or um, do further assessment with the family. So when there's an application in the court, the judge appoints a children's guardian to represent the child's interests, which means finding out their wishes and feelings, appointing a solicitor for them and doing assessment of what's in their best interests. So I'm only involved for as long as it's in court proceedings. Um, and I think the reason I got involved in it, I lived in a children's home with my mum and dad till I was six, um, because they were what were house parents then. It's sort of a bit similar to what you were saying about orphanage and children's home. That children's home doesn't exist anymore because there's been obviously a big move away from that in the UK as well, even though there are still mm-hmm. children's homes for particular children. They've been much older children with, you know, perhaps additional needs. Um, and so I've been a social worker since I was 21. Um, I initially worked in a children's home here, um, and now I'm yeah, a children's guardian. But it's interesting what you said about sex trafficking because children in care in the UK you know, statistically much more vulnerable to child trafficking than sort of any other demographic of children. Mm. Um, so it's been that, you know, we come across as well um, and trying to work out how to protect them and mm. when there's so much secrecy around it. So when, yeah. you, when you lived in the children's home with your family, were you like, did you have your own kind of like house or did you do a lot with the children? Were they kind of your friends yeah they? yeah that's what I should have said thank you <laughs> one of the reasons I became a social was a lot of my friends were from the children's home as I grew up and I saw the impact on their life their mental health how many of them ended up either homeless or in prison mm. and the effect that it had on mm. them living in care and yeah and the, the kind of the effects on the outcomes for their life really mm. um, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to be a social worker growing up yeah mm. Um, and you know, still some of my friends are from there but sadly actually some of them aren't even alive now because they've had such a difficult time of it um, yeah well they've yeah, not had great outcomes but that's like quite an unusual start to yeah. life isn't it Louis? <laughs> and that sure wouldn't happen it? now you wouldn't I mean there's sort of pros and cons about it I mean on the one hand what was great about us living there was my mum and dad were there full time around the children mm-hmm. whereas now there'd be lots of shifts and changes of staff mm-hmm. which is not mm-hmm. a very normal way for a child to grow up but equally, mm. obviously, you know, no one would do that here now. Wouldn't be expected to live somewhere full time. But we had our own flat. But when my mum and dad were working, we ate meals with the children and played with them, mm. and we're around them. Um, which I think was probably a mixed thing. I think probably quite hard for some children to, who were living there to see that. Mm. Um, but then all equally benefits too, and that my mum and dad were there all the time. Mm. They like modelled family. Yeah. In some ways, it made it feel like more family. Yeah. So how many people would be living in these children's homes? Yeah, so there were 20 children, 10 downstairs, they used to say, 10 upstairs. So they, they were divided into upstairs and downstairs. And I think we, li- we lived upstairs and there were, there were 10 children. Okay. But what was very different to now is, well, some of those children were like were five years old, which just wouldn't happen now. As a children's guardian, most of the children I meet here in children's homes here are older teenagers who've you know, not been able to tolerate living in a family for various reasons, who've been through various foster placements and... And maybe because of child sex trafficking and things like that and concerns that they're involved in gang culture have ended up in a children's home because a foster family couldn't manage those risks. I do actually want to talk about children's homes in the UK because there was an article this week in The Guardian saying how they they had to close quite a few because actually they were run by private equity firms who were making money from children's homes. And I thought, like you said, I sort of thought children's homes in the UK had gone like a long time ago yeah. I didn't really think of them still existing but there's 
the article was saying there were lots of them and they found that quite a lot of them were doing it for profit yeah. but had no regulation, nothing kind of checking that was okay and found that 112 of them were inadequately mm. run. I, I yeah. didn't even realise they still existed yeah. in our country. They do. And one of the difficulties, I think, is that the you know you don't have to be qualified to be a social worker in a children's home. You're quite potentially on the minimum wage. Mm. Um, and so you're not necessarily going to attract... I mean, obviously there are some people there who are amazing, but equally you might not attract the best kind of people to work with vulnerable children who are going to push you and push you potentially. Mm. You're going to have to be very calm and skilled. But they, uh, but they are still so here, still and some there. are great. And I mean, the child, I, I agree with you about the money part. My first job was in a children's home, and I, I can't remember... And this was 20 years ago, and they were charging over £1,000 a week per child, and yet the children had the whole group of children has something like £30 a week to spend on activities for them. And I can just remember there were guys driving around the children's home in cars, basic older guys, offering them a cigarette. You know, which one thing led to another, and before you know it, a lot of them were prostituting near Liverpool, um, and the outcomes for them were really poor, and that isn't something that I would mm. think was great. But sometimes I do think for a small minority of children... It is the only outcome because they can't live with their birth family. They've been in various foster placements and because of some you know, their behaviours coming out of their trauma, they're not able to be cared for within a family and it is sad and it's not ideal and you would hope that it might be temporary and that they could move into a family once they've had some therapeutic support. But I mean, I think children's home really varies. Some mm. have got really nurturing staff and therapeutic support and good education yeah. facilities and others feel like they're just a holding place where children are exposed to, you know where children are more likely to run away and mm. not get the support they need. There were different staff all the time who maybe not invested in caring for them. So I think there's, you know, and some are unregulated, like you say. Some, so I think they're, they're very different in experience. Of but where does the money go? Well, the one I worked for was a, a Catholic charity and obviously the money's okay. going somewhere but not into the home. I think anyone can set up a children's home. And I think the regulations vary depending on how many there are. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember visiting one as a social worker and when I went upstairs in the children's home I think if you had less than five children the regulations were different at that point I don't know what it is now and the children were on in mattresses upstairs because no one had bothered to go upstairs and see I mean it ended up that the children were removed by the social workers in the court rather than the children's home being shut down I think that lady opened another one it was private and yeah I mean I don't know enough about the regulations but yeah they do vary a lot mm. but for you growing up in that children's home was that a positive experience it, it was for me I comes down to personality. I quite liked that there were lots of people around. I felt secure. I knew, you know, my mum and dad were my main attachment, so I wasn't experiencing what they were with the changeover of staff and those relationships. And and I was, you know, I didn't know what that would be like if I was older. But at the time, I've got happy. Yeah, I've got quite positive memories of it. And did it close because it had to, or just? I think because the charity that ran it, it was, which was called National Children's Home at the time. I think it's become Action for Children or something, wanted to move away from running children's homes. Okay. Um, and so it, it closed down, yeah. Which actually, where you work, Sophie, I mean, the sort of vision is to close orphanages mm. and children's homes and to get people into homes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so the aim is to close orphanages, um, but we do understand that... Um, for some, in some countries where foster care isn't really like an option or it's not, you know, it's too early days, we do work with the, the local authorities to create small group homes, which are like much smaller homes with kind of specialist staff who, and it's more of a like family type environment. Um, 
and I think it, you can only have like a, a small number of children living in each home and in some countries that we work in a lot of the children in the orphanages have severe disabilities and so finding families where they can be supported isn't possible yet so um small group homes are are the kind of option for them but it's hoping that it's not a long-term option that mm-hmm. eventually they can then go from that to families or foster families yeah so how do you find the foster carers and how do you assess them and support them how, how easy is that to do i think uh you know our social workers um will be searching for foster families and will train foster families and work with the local authorities in that way but uh, it is really dependent on which country like there's very different systems so our work is very different in some countries because I guess one of the things you it sounds like saying is seeing that in those orphanages there's yeah people are there not even having had any checks like anyone can go there they're there in some ways for sort of tourism mm. and like are the children even orphans it's believed that eight out of ten children in orphanages around the world have got a parent or a relative that could care for them mm. if the family were supported to care for them so um in loads of cases children don't need to be in the orphanages and the reason they are is either because their family um, is struggling in poverty and um, isn't getting support to keep them together Um, or it's that like we've touched upon earlier like orphanages can be a very lucrative business so there is a bit of a pull factor of children being either placed into them by local authorities who think, who, who know that the budget for the orphanage will increase if more children go into it, or if it's a kind of privately run orphanage, people will go and find children and kind of give false promises to the parents and say, we can give your child a really good education, and then those children go into the orphanage, and in like worst case scenario, they might be forced into forced labour, or they're just there for fundraising. Um and sometimes there's kind of sex trafficking involved. Yeah, children don't need to be in orphanages. And like we've been talking about, we don't have orphanages in this country because um, we don't think it's like an acceptable way for children, looking after children. So um, it's kind of what we're tra- really trying to do is help bring more awareness as well that it's not acceptable in other countries and there, there are better solutions. Mm-hmm. But how easy is it to to bring those solutions? It's a complex process, definitely. It can take it takes years. Um, we work with the orphanage staff. We work with the government. Um, laws need to change. Children can't be transitioned like quickly. They need to have assessments, and they need people like Ruth. You know, help it helping to assess what is in the best interest for the child. So it it can it does take years. So for example with in Romania I think there was quite a lot of awareness around how when Child Chescu came down there was loads of orphanages and over a hundred thousand children in those orphanages. 
and now there's less than 4,000 children. That's taken like two decades mm. to get to that point. But there are other countries where it's, there's, it's really exciting. Like in Bulgaria, there's only four orphanages left. In Rwanda, there's 12. So it's a long process, but we were actually seeing, <laughs> just give this little plug, but we had some really exciting things happen this past week where um, on Saturday, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, 54 Commonwealth countries signed an agreement to say that they're committing to getting rid of orphanages, basically, mm. and building community care. And since over a third of the children in the world live in those countries, it's it's a really big moment. So very excited at Hope and Homes for Children <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> That's really great. What are the like main factors, reasons why the orphanages exist? So I think it's poverty is kind of a driving factor. Mm. Um, and it's often like the first, rather than trying to support the family or thinking of other forms of family-based care, orphanages are often seen as like the quick fix. I think it's a lack of awareness, often. Um, a lot of well-meaning people like me, you know, want to go and volunteer at an orphanage or fund an orphanage without really thinking it through, like, what it would be like to live in an orphanage without mm. parents when you could possibly be living with a family. Mm. I think it's, you know, we get a lot of resistance as well um, because, of the, because of how lucrative orphanages can be but yeah I think I think those are the main factors I think also in many countries there isn't enough support services for families with disabilities so it's seen as probably a better option to put your child in an orphanage because they might get more opportunities there but often that's not the case Mm. yeah I actually um I think we've I worked in this organization in India and this video was made by an American who kind of had a bit of a sort of platform of, of him going in like to music, like really dramatic, going into this place that was where it's kind of a mining area. Most families worked in in sort of doing mining. And he'd gone in and taken the children and put them in a home. And I'd seen it from like probably my kind of like westernising with the music and I was sort of like crying, it's amazing, all these children have got this home. And my boss, who is Indian, was like, you need to go in there and find out what's happening because he's just taken all these people from their homes and and from their families and put them in a home. That's He's actually just sort of trafficked them. That's illegal. Um, so I managed the investigations team, but it was the only time I had to go undercover was to go into this home because they're like they'll listen to a Westerner, whereas if we come in as Indians, but because it's been started by a Westerner, you should go in as a Westerner and visit because they'll like the fact that you're sort of volunteering at it. And it was it was really hard to work out sort of the details of it, but I do remember thinking, oh, it's so complicated. Like these videos get put out. Oh, isn't it great? Don't you want to give money to it? And other people were sending it to me saying, oh, look, they're doing similar stuff to you. And I was like, well, they're actually doing different, very different stuff to me because we follow all the laws. And I think there's sometimes this thing of, like, we'll just go into the country and pick up a child and look after them, but not thinking of, 
like are there laws in place that require you to follow a process if you find a child even on the street that you can't just put someone in your home like it's much more complicated and there's the sort of like naivety but also people are kind of finding ways to make money out of it as well unfortunately aren't they yeah but it felt like also it was poverty really for that made that guy feel like he needed to do something was that the families were so poor that they probably were struggling to feed their children so in some ways they were happy to let their children go somewhere else Mm. and um I wondered Ruth if like you see all these children in care what are the reasons why they're there what the reasons the families are in that place is it is it poverty or are things different in this country I think poverty wouldn't be the wouldn't be the only reason here I think usually it's mental health difficulties addiction which then lead to neglect and Mm. abuse um sometimes families with learning difficulties who struggle to kind of adapt to what their child's needs are and learn what they mm. are. But I think poverty exacerbates all of that. If you've, you know, got addiction issues or mental health issues and you're struggling financially, you're less likely to be able to... You're more mm. likely to be in a flat where your neighbours are going to hear. You're more likely to get a referral to social services. Mm. You're less likely to be able to pay for some help. Um, it's more likely to put you under pressure. So I think it definitely exacerbates all the reasons. Mm. But I'm not, I think it's rarely the primary reason... I think um, it would be, you know, a lot of my cases, I would say it's mental health, addiction and domestic abuse are the main mm-hmm. reasons. And sometimes it's parents with learning difficulties. But does it also feel like a cycle, like a lot of those parents have been in care themselves and that's where they've started and so they've kind of then... Yeah, I think, yeah, sadly, statistically, if you've been in care, you're more likely, I think you're, 25% of people here who are homeless and 25% of people in prison have been in care... Um, I think you're more likely to have a teenage pregnancy. You're also less likely to have support. If you, you, know, you get pregnant and you're young mm. and you're in care and you lose your accommodation, you've not got family to fall back on, so you're much more likely to end up back in the system. Mm. The other thing that I wanted to ask you is because I think some people might, just because of how their life is, when they think of like poverty in the UK, they're like, well, we do have like this amazing benefit system, which you know, in, in India or some of the countries that you're talking about so if you, if they're literally going to be dying on the road and not have any food mm. and there's not going to be an infrastructure which there is here which is amazing that we have this like but it's not really enough or is it enough or what what, what is the reality of their lives even if they've got all of those things yeah I suppose so the reality is for example if you're escaping domestic abuse and you're financially stable you can pay to find accommodation if not you might end up in a refuge mm. which might not be great you it might impact on your mental health you know, you know, lots of first-time parents we work with might end up in a bed and breakfast where they're surrounded by people who've been released from prison, mm. who've got addiction problems, and they're in a small room with their children. You know, if they're already vulnerable because they haven't got much support and they've got mental health difficulties, it's just going to exacerbate mm. all of those things. So I just think it is, yeah, it adds to all of that. You, you know, you perhaps more likely to live in an area where you're not going to a school that's really meeting your children's needs. That again is going to add, you know, add pressure. Um, yeah, so I just think it, 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 it I think, yeah, it's, it's the, the combination of the two together, I think, that mm. for a lot of people. So I think you know, a lot more families we work with are financially struggling. You're less likely to end up in the, the system, you know, if you've got, if you're financially stable because you can access the housing that you need, you can, you know, pay for additional mm. support, your children might be going, you know, 
going to school where there are less challenges. So I just think it, yeah, sometimes it can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it just reduces your options to flee from domestic abuse mm. or, you know, to get the help you need if you're struggling with depression and you need extra help. You know, it's just much harder mm. to get all of that if you're, mm. you know, financially struggling. And I think just the pressure and the stress on people um, then, you know, triggers other problems. That's kind of how model that works in model, lots of different places is, is to kind of, is to support a family that's in crisis in like a really holistic way. So it could be that, the father is struggling with employment, so it might support him to find a stable job. It might be that they aren't being able to access their benefits, so we'll work with them that way. It, it, it could be that they need essential food or that they, they haven't got the right accommodation. So it's all, it's all those stresses that are caused by poverty, I think, that when we're working with families, we're trying to kind of help them with lots of different areas of their lives, um, help them to get healthcare, help them to get their children enrolled in schools, like loads of different aspects. Because mm. I guess if you were saying some of the children, so many of the children do have family, but even if you find the family, if they've not got any work, then I guess the children are still vulnerable if they're going back home to a family where there's like no schools nearby and the parents can't find any work because they're living in a really remote village or something then you know there's they'll mm. be vulnerable even though they'll be at home with their parents yeah i mean there's a really thorough assessment about whether it's in the best interest of, for the child to go back to their family mm. um and if it's not then that that's like not pursued but yeah because it's not always the safest place there's often going to be you know as Ruth was saying kind of abuse or neglect and and not all of those can you can't always find solutions to to these things Mm. both of you see so many problems that there are that exist for children like are do you think there are ways to make things better or are we just is it just really a dire situation? <laughs> yeah, I think there are ways. I mean, it, so in England, obviously, the first thing would be to try and help the family make changes, whether it is helping them support to get the mental health support or go to rehab or, you know, if it's domestic abuse, you know, helping them find support to, mm-hmm. to separate. Um, you know, parenting courses, lots of, you know, there's lots of things that a social worker would have had to do with the family before they could ask a judge to remove a child part of my role would be making sure that all of that had been absolutely exhausted mm-hmm. that the family had been given every opportunity to make the changes um, and then yeah and for some children the, the best outcome is to go into foster care or to be adopted mm-hmm. um in order for them to be safe and have their needs met and I think then that might you know may change the trajectory for them and bring about better outcomes ensure their safety um obviously there is still an impact on them but had they remained in know their birth family you know the harm to them would have been far greater but obviously it's a balance of harm isn't it the Mm. harm to a child of removing them from their birth family Mm. it's a really big decision to make and there is a loss and a harm in that Mm. um but for some children the balance definitely lies in you know removing them from their how do you know that how how do you work that out yeah it's it's a big decision but it's not one that would be made quickly you know there's an there would be an initial decision and then there'll be a period where the family are allowed to 
time to try and evidence they can make changes with support before a final decision would be made. Um, and there are a lot of things that a court has to consider, the child's wishes and feelings, whether the family were given all the support they could be given, the, the effect on the child. There will have to be assessments undertaken um, and some of those specialists, if the parents have got learning difficulties or if there's a mental health or psychiatrist or if it's addiction, there'll be drug testing to see if the parent okay. can remain abstinent. Um, so it's, it's an evidence-based decision and it will take into account whether they can make the changes in the child's timescale, what the child's wishes and feelings, so if it's a much older child particularly, um, the court will have to give weight to what, they, what their wishes and feelings are. They may want to remain at home. Um, mm. and I may you know, have a different view to that we have to think about the effects of the harm on them of removing them from their birth family and weigh that with the harm of the alternatives um, you know, take into account whatever their, you know, their needs are in terms of their ethnicity and special needs and, mm. um, yeah, and the court has to consider all those things um, but it won't be a decision of one person that it, you know, there will have been social services involvement there will have been assessments and I'm, I'm independent um, and give a view and if there are any gaps in the evidence then you know, part of my role will be to ask for that so if the parents said they were abstinent and um, we can ask for testing that mm-hmm. kind of that kind of thing to make the decision and actually by the time it gets to court a lot of the time I feel quite clear you know there's a lot of evidence by then um, and actually the most stressful cases are where they're a bit grey where you think there's been a lot of violence maybe in a domestic abuse relationship mum says she's separated you're not really sure if she mm-hmm. has you know they're the hardest decisions mm-hmm. when you're not sure but I think a lot of the time there's a lot of evidence and it's really clear what the best outcome for the for the child is um, but ultimately it's the judge's decision and I'll have to listen to all that evidence and yeah and test that out and and make a decision I mean in some ways courts is, is a strange process but in some ways it's a very equal process because everybody has a solicitor and everybody has an equal voice and mm. um, yeah and then ultimately the judge decides Will the child normally want to stay with their parents, though? In my experience, it's rare for a child say they don't want to live with their mm. parents. Most children want to live with their parents, whatever's happened. Mm. Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. Does that change like once they get to a certain age, though? I think older children are often even more clear that they want to remain within their birth family. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I sort of feel like young children are quite forgiving of anything. Yeah, I think for some reason older children are much more fearful about going into the care system. Perhaps they're much more, they've seen things on TV, they're much more aware, mm-hmm. they'll have heard things from their parents and there can often be a lot more fear around it. And I think maybe if a child is already in foster care or living with a relative, because that's often an outcome, that a child will go to live with a relative and, that, um, and that's a better outcome if that's possible. That's something we'll always have to explore and make sure that the whole family has been considered. Um, but often... It might be that if a child's been in foster care and had a positive experience, their view then might change. But if you visit children at home to ask that, I think it's much harder for a child to to imagine what that might be like and how that could be different Mm. and how they could feel that that could be okay. Do you think that the care system works? (laughs) Um, For for some children it does. Obviously the best outcome for any child is to live with their family Mm. if if they can be safe and if their needs can be met. But I think sadly for some children, I think it's about 80,000 a year are you know, in care. Um, for some children, it is a better outcome. They're safe. And I think you know, foster carers have to go through a rigorous process here of assessment and checks. And it's a lot better than it, you know, it was many years ago. And the same with adopters. And I think for some children, it is a good outcome. Although there's always going to be a loss if you can't live with your birth family. But I think for some children, it is a, it is a good outcome. Mm. Um, but I think there are obviously some children who will always struggle to settle and always especially if they're older and they've been with their birth family for long and if they've 
suffered harm for much longer and they've got additional needs, it can be a lot harder then to form a secure attachment to new carers and that can be you know, an ongoing difficulty for some children. But I think, you know, I visit lots of children who are in foster care or have been adopted and they're settled and that's their family and they know about their birth family and they're able to hold both in mind and um, and you know for some children in foster care they, they continue to have very you know meaningful relationships with their parents and that's supported that's less likely if you're adopted but um yeah I think for some children it is a good outcome and I think there's lots the care system does work for some children but obviously like any system it's fallible and there can be some people who you know have been assessed but later on you know aren't able to look after children in the way that everybody had hoped that they could have done. And is the aim always that they go into care, they'll be fostered for a bit, but hopefully at some point they'll be adopted? I think it would depend on the age of the child, the strength of their... It's not right for everybody. I think the average age of being adopted is about two to three. I think once you're older... Two to three years old. It's probably the average age because by the time children have gone through court proceedings, unless it's maybe a relinquished baby or a parent's, you know, they've had previous children in care this is it can take a while because obviously it's a massive decision it's irreversible you know so you know it takes a while to go through a a court process and then a matching process and so I think it's very rare that it'll be a young baby that's adopted I think the average age is about two to three and I I think once you're older than five it can get harder and beyond seven really tricky Um, partly because psychologically a child might not be open to adoption they probably really know who their family is um, and the idea of claiming a new family and calling them mum and dad can be really difficult and I think also adopters are looking for a child that they can call their own and who can they, mm. they can be mum and dad to and I think if a child's old and that, that can be hard for them too um, but I think for some children it works really well but again it depends You know, sometimes for example social services have said adoption and I've said foster care because the child although the parents can't look after the child because of either mental health difficulties or learning difficulties they really love them, they have really meaningful contact, there could be a huge family, there could be siblings that you don't, where the relationships would be permanently severed. And so actually sometimes for some children, foster care is a better alternative than adoption because those relationships are so important to them. Yeah. But for other children, you know, adoption and having a new family, um, it, you know, is the right decision. So do you see like, lots of cases where you're like, oh, this is really positive? Yes, I know. <laughs> there are some where you think, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good outcome. But the older children are really difficult decisions, especially, for example, if there are siblings involved. If it's a sibling group and there's a, you know, perhaps a two or three, or but they've got older siblings mm. who they've grown up with, who've perhaps been involved in their care, um, but who can't be adopted because of their age, mm. then the idea that they're never going to be able to see their two-year-old, three-year-old sister again, and you know, these are really difficult decisions. Mm. So, you know, and they're, they're the kind of things you wrangle with. What is better to have for them to have a sort of secure, enduring, permanent family life. Um, you know, and sometimes that can be achieved through foster care. There are some foster carers who are in it for the long term and can provide that security and stability, but, that, but not all foster carers want to make that level of commitment. Um, and, yeah, and you've got to think about the, yeah, the loss in, of sibling relationships and the gain mm. of you know, adoption and security that might bring. So, that, yeah, that's, they're really different decisions around sibling relationships. Do you think there's things that could change in society that would make the care system work better? Um, well, I mean, just even just talking about adoption, one thing that, you know, if, it, but it's really difficult if adopters, if there was maybe more openness around ongoing contact with birth families, you know, that might make it easier for some children. But then equally... You could argue that's re-exposing some children to the harm that they've already suffered. Mm. It can be destabilising for a placement. So I think it would be difficult to have a blanket rule. Adopters are 
trained to be open, that they're assessed on that basis. But the reality is, you know, openness the most might be maybe seeing both parents once a year and siblings a little bit mm. more. Um, I suppose if there were more foster carers and more adopters, then local authorities would have more choice. Um, and I think that fluctuates how many adopters and foster carers are. It, it, the process takes a very long time. Mm. Um, so children are often in limbo with the stress and uncertainty of that for a very long time. And again, that's a balancing act between giving birth parents every opportunity to make the changes because that would be the best outcome for a child if they could versus the timescales of a child who... You know, who needs permanency and security and needs to know where they're living. So, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know about one blanket thing. I mean, I, I suppose the earlier that social services are aware of difficulties, the better, um, which relies on people referring and social services getting involved at a quicker stage. And the more pressure social services are under, the less likely they're going to get involved at a very early stage because obviously their thresholds go up as their mm-hmm. caseloads go up. But the court process takes a long time. I think the courts are under pressure, they don't have the availability for hearings. So, Sometimes all the assessments will be complete, but you can't get a hearing in court for, you know, in the time mm-hmm. scale you want because the courts are under tremendous pressure and have a huge backlog of cases. Mm. That's very tricky. I um, was listening to um, a podcast on adoption where they were interviewing the chi- the children's minister, who's the MP for somewhere, but he's the children's minister, and they were saying, "Sorry, we're just sort of going to ask you this, but because you're a conservative, we." have this assumption that you don't care so we just want to know do you like actually care and they were sort of saying wrongly or rightly you know there's an assumption that like the Labour government would give more like money and care to these services whereas the Conservative government don't maybe they rely on other things but not that like this has to be like a political thing but is there like a feeling like if there was more money like put into this and that therefore like there was more money for social work there was more more money for like the support that would be better or actually do we need like charities to come along and be there to support foster carers and yeah I guess both probably I mean I think definitely money helps the you know the, the more support a family can get with addiction issues at the earliest stage people are on waiting lists for rehabilitation mm-hmm. you know actually if, they, if they're at that point where they're ready to address that and they're having there are delays and being able to do that and also what kind of unit they could go to maybe they want to be able to go with their children and that's not an option because that resource doesn't exist at that time or they want to separate from a partner but the refuge that they have been offered is miles away from the child's school and then it's another disruption for a child who's already been through a lot of trauma and instability so definitely you know financial help so that people get the absolute best support at the earliest stage and would, I think, have yeah, an impact on outcomes. Um, yeah, and also, in post that, children are in the care system. With the more support that foster carers have to access therapeutic support or whatever resource it is that they need. And then even post that, care leavers, you know, the more support that they could have because the outcomes, you know, for some children are really poor, like we said before. A quarter of people in prison have been in care and a quarter mm. of people who are straight homeless have been in care. Because if, you know, if, if you're 18 and you lose your accommodation, most people can go back home. But actually, if you don't have that as an option, you're then homeless and that's it. You don't have a guarantor, you don't have that deposit or anything. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, definitely additional finance. And I think, yeah, a combination of a statutory duty and charities being creative about the support they can give, you know, families. Mm. I remember when we watched Made. Have you seen Made, Sophie? That's like... Mm. Yeah. 
and there was one point where like everything just is getting worse and worse in her life and I remember saying to you me and Miles watching it like yeah but how can everything be going so badly and you're like I always see these kind of things where you can't believe how many how much yeah, bad yeah, stuff yeah. can happen yeah to someone it's like every opportunity she gets somehow doesn't goes wrong and but you were like yeah no I see that all the time yeah or you get I mean I, I, you know or you get new housing and it is it's on a new estate that's perhaps had to give 10% of its accommodation to, you know, for council housing, but there are, there are no buses um, to get to the school that the children are already in, even, you know, that might be a 15-minute drive, but actually it's over an hour on, on two buses, mm. and, you know, a single dad who's really struggling already to look after his children has now got an hour, it's going to take him an hour to get the kids to school, an hour to get back, an hour again, you know, that can just be the straw that breaks the camel's back, whereas... You know, I guess if things like that were thought through and there was public transport to, you know, it was all part of the package when, we, when people are rehoused and making sure that they can go back to their school. You know, otherwise, you know, children who repeatedly end up changing schools because of house moves through no fault of their own. You know, their confidence is not to use time. Then they really struggle to settle in school. Then if they don't go to school because they're finding that they don't have friends and that's more pressure on the parents and all these things just feed into each other and the mm. levels of stress. Mm. Sophie, I know Hope and Homes for Children are doing things in Ukraine at the moment and I wondered if you could just say a bit about what's what's going on and what you've seen. Yeah, um, so Hope and Homes for Children has been working in Ukraine for since 1998, so um, really embedded there and we also have teams in Romania and Moldova, so um, I've got colleagues in Kiev and Lviv and Dnipro, um, and right now they're providing kind of emergency humanitarian assistance, especially for the families in our program, kind of providing essentials, food, blankets, water, money, transport options to get people out, but also organizing kind of safe evacuations um there are so ukraine actually has um one of the highest number of children in orphanages in europe so there's over 700 orphanages and these orphanages have been like we've all been hearing kind of shells bombed so our team have been trying to we've been doing a lot of advocacy to the to the UN and the EU about how, how can we make sure that children are safe, unaccompanied children are safely evacuated because I know we've gone back to it a lot of times but obviously right now the risk of trafficking for refugees is so high especially if they're an unaccompanied young person who's like more vulnerable um, to being trafficked anyway because of growing up in a care situation. We've got our, our team are kind of helping families who might maybe have children with disabilities who can't leave because they can't move so kind of providing essentials to them but we I have one story of we there was a children's home in Dnipro where there were over 50 children and it just became obviously completely unsafe and um, so our team in Ukraine it was a 50-hour journey, but managed to get yeah. over 50 children out of the country and into Romania um, in Iasi County. And that was like such a sort of treacherous, kind of scary 50 hours because they 
were placed onto a train and that train as it travelled had to be in pitch black like the kids had to turn off the, you know um, put their phones onto aeroplane mode whoever had phones and no lights so that they just weren't seen we've been doing kind of evacuations and like this and advocating for safe evacuations to the global institutions and then we've got teams in Moldova and Romania at the borders helping refugees as they arrive. We're working with UNICEF in these blue dot centres which are providing like assistance to refugees basically, all kinds of different assistance um, and our social workers and psychologists are like there to create safe spaces for children, um, make sure that they're being kind of funneled to the right services. So yeah, we've, that's what we've been doing. Um, we actually, so there was also, I think this news about Ukraine and Moldova being considered for EU candidacy. It's a really exciting piece of news actually in terms of care reform because the EU has said that one thing they need to do is they need to address their, their orphanage systems um, in order to become members. I mean, not to probably address it before they become members, but that it has to be a really, it's an urgent issue that needs to be dealt with in those two countries. So that's really exciting as well, because obviously there's a lot of children in orphanages in Ukraine. And that's kind of actually how Hope and Homes began. So it started out of the Bosnia war, and that's how it all started. And we kind of saw the destruction that this can have on, on children. Wow. So actually, there are so many children in orphanages in Ukraine before the war started. I'm yeah. guessing that the war will, like, will potentially make more children likely to be orphaned. So it's going to be a huge problem. What happens from now on? Definitely, because if you think of how many children are losing parents, um, and also the children that are in orphanages in, in Ukraine... You know, understandably, many of the staff have left, which has meant mm. that children are being left on their own. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a huge crisis for child protection mm. in Eastern Europe. They, but, I guess those children are probably some of the most vulnerable there because they don't have anywhere way to like access help really to get out unless there's someone like you guys coming. They're sort of stuck there in in these orphanages. Definitely, yeah. They're really vulnerable. Um, but I think it's also really, I mean, it's horrific, isn't it? The news, what we're seeing. But it is also shining a light on something that's not often talked about. You know, we don't often focus on children in orphanages, but there's been a lot of media coverage about these children because they are so vulnerable mm. right now. But what will happen to them? So it, the aim to get them out of the country... Is that the aim? Not always, because you don't want them to kind of get lost in other countries. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because once they come out, what happens to them? Well, that's why it needs to be done really carefully, because as we mentioned earlier, like a lot of those children have families that they're still connected to. If they're transitioned into other countries, they need to have all the documentation. If they can still have the same staff that were looking after them, in Ukraine, that's how, that's best because those staff know them. Making sure that they're 
connected with the child protection system in that country um, that they're all accounted for because this is an opportunity for children to go missing really. Obviously we want to get children into safe places but we don't want lots of all the children to move into different countries and then not to be able to come back. Mm. But I guess it just depends on on where it's safe Mm. in the UK. Mm. Do you you ever feel oh there's just so much bad stuff in the world I don't know how to think positively about anything and do you ever feel like when you see that and you see people's situations you think oh things are just so bad I don't know how I can have faith in anything or anyone or can you be able to like see all the bad stuff in life but see good as well yeah I don't your situation's perhaps different but I, I don't feel like that because you know there are families that I work with who you know are able to access the support and make changes and um, and the children can remain with them there are also family members who'll step up and look after the children there is a lot of hope as well mm. there's some amazing foster care amazing adopters and that becomes their new family mm. and there are good outcomes um and I think yeah to be a social worker, you've got to believe there's hope, otherwise it is really depressing. Um, otherwise, there's no point being part of the process if you yeah. don't feel like you can affect change. And and I think, obviously, for some children, it is very sad. And But I think I, by being in it, I feel like I can... I mean, I almost find it harder when I sit on the street and I see some parent wallop their kid and I can't do anything about it. That sort of, you know, you see things around and about and you can't do anything about it. I feel like, at least in my role, I see things, I can be part of getting the evidence, be part of the solution, be part of mm. arguing what's best for the child. And it feels like there's some energy in that. And I think there are, you know, the, 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 yeah, that the system is meant to be about trying to find the best outcome mm. for a child. I know that has lots of challenges, but I do think for a lot of children... They're good. We do, hope. we do get it right sometimes and we do make sure that they're safe and even though there's a loss in that. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't feel like that, no. Mm. That's good. What do you think, yeah, I, I think I also have a lot of hope. I think I see progress. I think, obviously, there's loads of... Um, we are constantly bombarded with all the terrible stories all the time, but I see a lot of progress, even just in how the charity sector responds to different type of problems. Like, uh, yeah, I have a lot of hope. Like, I, I, I do think that... Um, if you think about how we don't have orphanages in the UK anymore, I really think that that can happen across the whole world. I think there's like more and more energy and thought being put into how to make the world more equal. I don't. I do think the rich keep getting richer, and I do think that's happening. But I do think there's loads of energy and thought being put into and compassion being put into trying to make life more equal. Mm. It's a good job you've got hope. We'd have to change the name of your charity, wouldn't you? (laughs) No hope. No hope. The homes are It wouldn't be quite as inspiring. No, I do have hope. I think I don't have hope when I'm tired. Um, the question that I always ask on my podcast is what is the greatest inequality you see in the world right now? Which can be sort of injustice or something that from your perspective you think is the greatest inequality. 
I do think it is a kind of upbringing you have. I think if you've got a family who love you, who take care of you, who try their best for you, you're more likely to, you know, do all right at school, to make friends, to, you know, to have a, yeah, to form secure relationships in later life. But I think if you have an upbringing where you don't have a secure relationship with your parents or you're not cared for them or you're by them or you suffer abuse or neglect, I think, yeah, the impact on your life can be long-term and enormous. It can... Yeah, affect your ability to have relationships, your mental health, your likelihood of being involved in the criminal justice system, your your life expectancy, your ability to enjoy life. And I just think, yeah, so for me, I think it is a kind of, it is about family life and the upbringing you have. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's also access to resources. I think often what charities are doing is enabling people to access things whether that's financial support whether that's support in finding employment whether that's being able to access your rights I think it's kind of the privileged wealthier end of society have access to everything pretty much um not everything but you know Mm. and I think that's the difference Mm. yeah that's really good thank you so much Thank you, both of you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations on Faith and Equality with this one with Sophie and Ruth. So interesting hearing from them both. And Sophie's charity, Hope and Homes for Children, sounds like such an amazing organisation. And if you did feel like you wanted to give to them, then I'm sure Sophie and her team would be very grateful for any support that anyone was able to give, particularly thinking about the work that they're doing right now in the Ukraine with children who are being affected by the war right now. And if you're able to vote for me and my podcast, I would really appreciate that as well. And also want to say a quick thank you to Levi Smith, who helps edit this podcast. He's absolutely amazing. And if you ever want to start a podcast, he is brilliant at helping to put it together, the editing, everything. So um, get in touch if you would like his details. But thank you for listening and have a great day. Mm-hmm.